1: My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Kirk Sutherland of Erdo Wines. It's uh, August 6, 2021. We're at Cova. Cova. Kova! Yeah. We're at Cova Coffee in Portland. Uh, Kirk, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, first and biggest question to get us started is why wine?
2: Ooh, well, um, I actually got into wine while I was living here. So I went to college out here, spent most of my 20s in Portland. Uh, I worked in coffee for a long time and I got into coffee as an interest in uh, social justice and agricultural stuff. Uh, So, you know, at the time in the early mid 2000s, coffee was very much booming here. So (laughs) I moved out from Boston and I was going to college here, and you know, the coffee company that I worked for did a lot of trainings to build up your palate and have you learn about sourcing and things like that, and then that inevitably led to a very innate connection with how wine is made. Uh, my like big breakthrough moment was on a trip with some friends down to Irie, and I tasted a birth year Uh, South Block Reserve and was just like this is what wine can be so I, I later moved on from coffee moved into restaurants and decided to pursue a wine path. So we'll come back to that obviously the a second. Let's back up a second. You yeah. mentioned born in Boston. Tell me about yeah. kind of upbringing, education, and kind of life before Portland. Yeah, so I, I moved out here pretty young. Um, I spent most of my early life in New England between Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Uh, moved out here at 20 years old. Um, I had gone to Boston University for a short period of time before transferring out here to Portland State University and then later Lewis and Clark. Um, I was interested in studying uh, like global studies and with a focus on race, class, and gender as someone who moves to Portland does. (laughs) Um, And I was very just like attracted to the lifestyle of, you know, I was very much into riding bikes and organic, produce things like that Um, but there is also a really big uh, punk and metal scene out here which is the scene that I grew up in as as a kid in Boston so that very much attracted me to Portland you know I I was I lived here 20 to 27 and the rent was really great and I eventually decided that I needed to go back to a bigger city and I've still always loved this place and come back quite a bit
1: so you mentioned kind of the aha moment for you in, in terms of wine. Uh, at that
2: point, did you have much experience or knowledge about wine? Not really, it was just, you know, drinking stuff here at restaurants. And I knew that at that point in my life, I, I really liked Pinot Noir, but that was very much like the base level for me. And it really wasn't until I like went to the IRE tasting room and they like, were talking about soil and how, terroir translates that I was like, oh, that's a lot like coffee.
1: So you mentioned you got into kind of food and restaurants at that point. Tell us kind of about that that path for you and about
2: working there and learning wine. Yeah, so I left Portland in 2010 and moved down to Los Angeles. Um, LA wasn't for me, I I was there for a year and a half, but I was very lucky to kind of settle in as the, like a wholesale coffee trainer. And by doing that, I was connected with the tasting kitchen in Venice, whose chef Casey was actually, he he, um, was a, Sous Chef at Clark Lewis, so Portland connection, and then that like kind of intertwined it, and they opened up a location in downtown Los Angeles, and they had me be a manager, and they had a very brilliant wine director, Francois, at the time, who was like, "You know how to taste things. You should start tasting coffee or uh, start tasting wine," mm-hmm. and he's a Frenchman and is very much into the Loire Valley, and so that was kind of the the jumping off point, loving wine, like really liking to learn a little bit about wine from there and then getting more involved in restaurant work, which is what drove me to move back to the East Coast. Um, I was super, super lucky to find a home in the Andrew Tarlow restaurant group. So he owns diner and Marlow and Sons, kind of the, the first farm to table, very serious, like, we write the menu on the table, it changes every day sort of situation, but also was really the, the pioneer for the natural wine movement in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was like buying La Pierre 25 years ago. Um, and their wine director, Lee Campbell, when I moved out there, Really took me under her wing and started taking me to tastings and really helped me like develop a base level of knowledge. Um, and then I decided to kind of go the court of master sommeliers track for a little bit. So I kind of kind of did all of, <laughs> all of
1: that. So before before we get into the sort of formalized training, tell me about learning learning wine from that perspective. Was it yeah similar to learning coffee? What was yeah. what was different
2: about it? It was year? it was. I got really interested in working in LA, but it was something that was a little bit unattainable for me. I was like the coffee guy, I was interested in wine, I would go to the wine class, but it didn't seem like something that I could make a career out of. It still seemed like this kind of, you know, not hoity-toity, but Mm upper-class, higher-end thing than, like, I grew up as a poor kid in Boston, and I was like, I can't do that, that's not going to be my life. And then when I moved to New York and was working with Lee, she just like completely dismantled all of that and it was about the joy of drinking wine and the the radical act of beautiful farming and biodynamics and organics and like I started learning about all of the Louis Dresner wines and how like the Gang of Four completely changed the world and like completely fell in love with Marcel Lapierre and Jean Foyard and she just turned it all on its head for me and she was like, the wine world has room for everybody in it. Um, She's a black woman, so she's had, she's seen it all and she had to carve out a place for herself and now she's a legend and I feel incredibly humble and thankful that she was my mentor and really like showed me how to, approach wine in a way that it can be accessible to everyone. And so that that was really the foundation for me in moving into it was like trying to figure out a way to take away the mystery behind wine and bring more people into it. And really like it it changed my life. I, I worked at Raynard, which was a, a restaurant that Andrew had inside of the White Hotel I uh, was part of like basically the opening crew of that spot, and it was well before the huge boom of natural wine. Like Raynard was way ahead of its time, had a huge Jura section, like no one knew how to drink any Jura wines, and no one understood like what souve wall kind of things were, and How to pronounce all these crazy grape varieties. And I remember when uh, people would like come in and order things off the list and send them back because they didn't understand like spritzy, no sulfur wines. And this was like 2013. And now, almost 10 years later, you like can't go to a restaurant in Brooklyn without there being a significant amount of natural wine there.
1: What about natural wine specifically? Was so appealing.
2: It was the the aspect of the like I said the like the radical nature of farming and kind of the the punk rock aesthetic of it that really made me want to be part of it. It was uh, Stefano Bellotti who makes the Casina Degli Ulivi wines. Who like just reading about him, trying to like he got out of the the Gavi. DOC because they were like just messing around too much, and his wines like never really fit in with the whole structure of Italian wine bureaucracy. And so he went like above and beyond, and went beyond biodynamic. And really, I think like his farming, rest in peace, his uh, his model was really, I think, kind of the at the forefront of what now people are calling regenerative agriculture. Um, I watched Mondo Vino, and was like, this guy's the one.
1: So tell me about going from that into something like this, the Court of Master Psalms, which is a, obviously yeah. a very different perspective.
2: So I, I did a few years with uh, Andrew Tarlow, and knew that I wanted to take it to the next step. I I wanted to try to see wine from as many different angles as I could. Um, the restaurant group in Brooklyn is outstanding, but I wanted to kind of like get experience tasting and opening bottles that were of a higher price point and a little bit more caliber so that I could learn really the benchmarks and things. Mm -hmm. So I took the intro um, certified and advanced exams uh, and landed at the Matterhouse Group in Manhattan. So that's uh, Estella, Café Ultra Paradiso, and Flora Bar. So that really was, like, the one and only time that I wore a suit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was also not for me, but I did it for a little over a year, and it was really great experience. I was, like, opening $2,000 bottles of wine, which, like I said earlier, I never thought I would be able to do that. Uh, but it wasn't long-lasting for me. I'm, I'm very, very glad I did it it taught me a lot and it taught me what I didn't want my life in wine to be uh and so actually after I was done at Matterhouse I went back to Andrew Tarlow and uh became the wine director of Marlow and Sons and Diner which was basically like coming full circle for me the running the place that inspired me to do the thing that I'm doing now was huge um I was with him for a little while longer, and then for the last three years, I've been the beverage director at Roberta's until July, where I've fully ejected from restaurant world. Fully into the next step. we'll, we'll get Fully we'll get, into the next step. We'll get to that in a second, but I'm
1: curious about beverage director or, or wine director. Tell me about the unique challenges of that and of learning learning what you need to do and how to build that kind of a a list in a portfolio.
2: Yeah, um you know, I started at like the very base level. I was barista and then I was back waiter and then I was bar back and then I was bartender and then I was floor manager so I really, I did the crawl up and like, whenever I talk about these things it really always comes back to Lee. Lee was the one that basically told me how she curates her lists, why she curates them the way that she does, and was the first one to, like, tell me how to do a correct markup. Uh, so it, it took a long time and it was many years of being a, a restaurant manager before I was able to get my first wine-buying job. And my first wine-buying job was fairly short-lived but it was a, a, a tiny list at a restaurant called High Street on Hudson uh, in Manhattan, which is where I got poached from to work for Estella Galtroparadiso, but it was a tiny all-American list. Um, And, you know, I just had to think about it in ways that learning the Reynard list, how I wanted to kind of emulate, knowing that I needed to have things that were accessible to everyone, but also have things that were really interesting and have a good array and how to format the list properly so that anyone can look at it and not get instantly terrified and run away from it, uh, but also have it be very accessible price point-wise, and that's something that I've always tried to work toward. You know, it's great to have really, really high-end wines on wine lists, and I think that there's definitely always going to be a place for that, but I think that it is really scary for people to come into a restaurant and see Jean Louis Chauve Hermitage for $2,600 or something like that. So I actually, like, lear- learning from Lee, she would always have really high end stuff off the list mm-hmm. so that if you really want to cultivate a higher end clientele, you you work one on one with them and then you, like, let them in to the circle and then you say, Well, I've also got this thing, but it's secret. <laughs> so. Sure. Uh, it really, the, the whole way that I've always, I did, uh, formulate my wine list was to, to make it so that someone who wants to come in and buy a $42 bottle of wine will find something and it'll be wonderful to drink, uh, someone who's coming in with their mom and they know that the only thing that she likes is Sauvignon Blanc, will be able to get a Sauvignon Blanc, and people who want to, like, get freaky and go on the adventure have ability to find that too and then another thing like I I studied uh, education a bit uh, and learning and teaching has always been something that was very important to me so I always held wine class at least once a week sometimes twice a week Lee was very good about running wine classes so I always kind of wanted to emulate her style which was serious and definitely founded in an academic background but also really fun and everybody laughed and it was again like demystifying this wine thing and bring, being able to bring everybody in and i like just recently I was uh talking with my my friend Terry who was a server with me at diner and they were saying that going to wine class at diner changed how they perceive wine and now they're working in wine in Asheville so it's like being able to also foster growth in people who are a little bit younger than me or people who are just starting to kind of want to get interested in wine was always super important to me
1: When it comes to building a wine list that has all those different facets to it, tell me about how much exploration do you do and, and how much is how much of it is things you're seeking out and how much of the things that are being
2: brought to your attention? Um, well, like I said, I tried to do kind of all of it. So when I was managing at Reynard, I was also doing some part-time work at Dandelion Wine, which is a tiny little wine shop in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, that's uh, still... Take it ass to this day. Went in a Greenpoint before Greenpoint was like, you know, a wonderful, highly sought-after neighborhood in Brooklyn. Uh, and Lily, the owner there, she's now one of my best friends. But it was a, it, it was a way to be able to explore and taste things that I wasn't able to really taste at the restaurants because you know wine reps would come in and they would know exactly what Lee would like, and it would be almost 100% French wine all the time. But working two or three shifts a week at the shop meant that I could taste things totally internationally and things in different styles than what I was tasting at Reynard. It wasn't always natural wines and, you know, getting to to see a wider spectrum of that. Also, living in New York, it's at least almost 10 years ago, it was so easy to be able to go to all of these tastings. They happen all the time. And so I would try to go to every single tasting that I could within my schedule, sometimes like three or four a week and taste like hundreds of wines. And that's really where like I learned maybe these things aren't exactly what I want, but I know that these are things that other people are going to want. And so it was never, building a wineless was never about my palette. It was about making sure that everyone finds something to drink. So I always tried to have the wineless be pretty far-reaching, even if they were smaller um, and focused, but approachable for everyone. I wanted it to be as inclusive as possible.
1: So obviously, you've already been in Oregon at this point and have, have at least some idea of, of the Oregon wine scene. So tell me about... I'm curious, before we get into the next step of your of your life, tell me about the Oregon wine in New York. Uh, what did you see while you were there or have been there in terms of its
2: notoriety and, and, and popularity? Yeah, so when I started the the job at Hydrogen Hudson, the all-American wine list, um, I... Kind of, like, set out to sort of have Oregon be a bit of a focus, and it was through running that wine list that I was able to, you know, meet people like Brienne Day and Tom and Kay from Division, who have since become some of my closest friends, and also people who I've now worked for. Um, you know, there was always a place for Bergstrom and Christum and Irie and the benchmarks, those were always on the, the really good wine lists. You can see antique Terra at Michelin star restaurants and things like that. Uh, but I was really excited about trying to find things that I could pour by the glass from Oregon that were more interesting and a little bit out of the box, that weren't always just Pinot Noir or Chardonnay. And it was, like, it was folks like Tom and Kate's wines that actually came in at a price point that I could pour them by the glass and it was interesting to see things like I remember the first time I tasted Brianne's Petnat of Malvasia I was like they have Malvasia in Oregon <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that is something that really for me set Oregon apart from the rest of the domestic wine scene was that it was never super that the state in general wasn't always pigeonholed directly to the Willamette Valley and People have been able to experiment here and carve out a style of wine that is uniquely theirs. Obviously, there's gonna gonna always harken back to the influence of Burgundy and Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and those wines are wonderful, and I love them. If I hadn't tasted Pinot Noir from Oregon, I wouldn't be interested in wine. Um, but that evolution of it in like the 2015 to 2018 bit and the, you know, the the boom of kind of more naturally producing wineries making wines that were a little bit more avant-garde and were affordable and accessible and were really new and exciting, really, like, made me want to kind of dive headfirst into it. I was only at High Street on Hudson for nine months before Thomas Carter, who used to be the beverage director and partner of Estella, like, came into the restaurant, had dinner, and was like, "I'm come work for me." <laughs> and so when I went up to uh, Estella, was part of the crew to open up the restaurant inside of uh, the Met Bower uh, Flora Bar, which unfortunately went under during the pandemic, and it was the first time that Thomas was like, "Let's put a American section on the wine list." So Matthew, who was my, like, co-wine pilot, he had way more of a French and Italian background from working at Estella, and we, like, I was like, all right, let's go and taste all these wines, and I can tell you about my friends in Oregon who are making really, really great wine, and we can, like, put these really fun, super interesting wines on the wine list and try to, like, give them some exposure on the Upper East Side.
1: At what point does the idea of wine production become part of the story?
2: Um, So 2016 was the first year that I came out to work some of Harvest. Um, I came out in 2015 and hung out with Brianne for like a week as she was building her winery in Dundee. Uh, And then I was like, I kinda wanna see this part of it. Like I said, I wanted to see every portion of the wine world. And at that point, the only things that I hadn't done were learning how to make wine and working like the sales side of it, wholesale kind of bit, which never really interested me all that much, but production really did. And uh, Brienne's approach to sourcing fruit from responsible vineyards was really, really interesting to me and her very like hands-off approach to winemaking was something that really caught my eye. So I came out in 2016, helped her a little bit, did a tiny bit with Tom and Kate. And then 17, I came out, I split my time evenly between Brianne, Tom and Kate. 18, I did the same thing. And then in 2019, I stuck with just Tom and Kate uh, because it was getting a little hard for me to like fly into Portland and then either have to find a ride or rent a car and go to Dundee for a day, sleep in a tent, come back and work at Tom and Kate's for two days, get in a car, go back to Dundee. And then that year in 2019, my uh, chef at Roberta's, Carlo Maracci, um, we had talked about doing a custom bottling for the restaurant. And I talked to Tom and Kate about doing it and they were totally in for it and we made a wine together and I like designed a label for it and got it into the restaurants and it was really popular and it just, it like ignited something in me that made me want to do more of that Um, and then kind of here we are. (laughs) From
1: that, from that kind of moment of like you say, like igniting, uh, what did, did you, what did you have in mind? Like, what did you, th- what did you think, like the long-term goal would be if you were to get into wine
2: production? What, did, what would you want to do? I still don't know. Um, I, I wanted to make something. So initially, the wine that we made for the restaurants, it was called Wallace. Um, it was a dedication to my dog, and. We wanted to make something that could be at a buy-the-glass price that was exclusively at the restaurants, uh, and we wanted to make like a super light red that could be chilled. And Carla was really into this producer from the Ardèche in France, Anders Friedrich Steen, who was doing a lot of kind of crazy co-fermentations of red and white grapes and pressing half of one type of red grape and pouring it over the other half and leaving some of it to become somewhat oxidized, just like was the most crazy experimental winemaker that I'd ever seen. And he really loved those wines and he kind of wanted the thing that we made to sort of emulate that, um, so that's kind of where the idea for Wallace came out. It was a co-ferment of Grenache from Applegate Valley and Albarino from the Willamette Valley, um, and I, I was trying to think of like how I could make something that was light and juicy, but also had a little bit of spice and was really interesting, but again approachable. So we ended up kind of working in the model from Anders where we did all of the grenache and alberino whole cluster but pressed off half of the grenache right away Mm -hmm. and then threw the juice into the fermenter with the rest of the whole cluster grenache and all of the whole cluster alberino and just like foot tread it and then gave it a pump over once a day for like five days six days and then pressed it that was it and it ended up being this like super bright like cranberry-laden, super juicy thing that was crushable and was so much fun to make and then so much fun to drink that I was like, I think I wanna do something like that again that maybe incorporates some other things. And it was the, the creative, experimental part but also being in a winery-like division where there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of things that you can kind of approach in sort of a culinary sort of way that you can like pepper in these little ingredients was, ended up being like a a boon for me. It really fostered a lot of creativity and helped me to, to make things that I did not expect I was going to make.
1: Well, let's talk about the. I'm curious about the reaction to, to Wallace. First of all, uh, you've, you've had you have all this wine experience, and now finally there's something in the bottle that's got not even just your name on it, but your dog, your dog's yeah. name on it. So tell me about that. About about presenting that to the world, and about what what that feels like.
2: Yeah. Um, well, we we bottled it, and we're ready to send it out for spring of 2020. But then everything happened. Um, so. It ended up getting to New York in August during like the height of the pandemic, but it was while Roberta's was just rocking with outdoor dining and it was hot and it was a humid year and the wine came in and it it drank like a super dark rose or very, very light red. And we were serving it for 15 bucks a glass. And it was, we went through, I think 20 cases in a month so like being able to pour it for my friends when they came into the restaurant but then also when i wasn't there seeing like the reports from the end of the night and it being like 32 glasses of wallace six bottles of wallace i was like this is selling and it's not even like people who know that i made it (laughs) they're just like buying this fun thing and we were also able to sell a little bit to some retailers. Um, Lily from Dandelion Wine picked up a good amount of it. A couple other people had reached out and we we didn't send too much to retail because it was branded as a Roberta's wine. Um, But the little bit of retail buzz that we got was good. We sent some of it to the Los Angeles location for Roberta's and that went off really well. So they they wanted to make the wine again if if we could but with everything happening pandemic wise and then stuff kind of shutting down again it didn't seem too feasible to you know commit to anything but the grapes were still available so i just pulled money out of savings and bought it myself
1: So after that, what's what, what's the next step towards where you are now? What was the next step after that kind of first initial success?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I initially thought that I was going to just make Wallace again in twenty twenty, but then fires happened, so it caused me to have to change plans. So we still got the Grenache, we still got the Albarino but they came in at wildly different times. Before the the first year that we made it in 19, the Grenache came in I think on the 22nd of September and then the Albariño came in on the 23rd. So they were a day apart. It allowed me to do like a quick cold soak of the Grenache and then they just fermented together the entire time. Last year it was two weeks apart just because everything in the valley slowed down so much because of smoke. So it it, forced me to think on my toes and I knew that I wasn't going to want to blend the two together because the whole idea was it being fermented together. So I kind of changed the game plan on the Grenache where it was totally, it was 100% whole cluster in 2019. I destemmed stemmed everything in 2020 to avoid smoke stuff. Um, I direct pressed half of it poured it over the other half, and then I threw in Sauvignon Blanc skins during the ferment to kind of give some more of that white grape element and some spice, and then the albariño was like a totally different beast. Uh, it had guaiacol rates, it was smoky, so I ended up just direct pressing it and cold settling it, racking it off its leaves. But, Tom told me about this vineyard that they were buying Gamay from in Yakima, and he was like, they have Syrah and they have some Cabernet Sauvignon, and the, the price was right and it was farmed to the parameters that I'm generally okay with. It's it's not farmed to where I want my brand to go from here, but it was able to like bump up production for me a bit. So. I bought a ton of uh, Syrah and a half ton of Cabernet and I direct-pressed the Cabernet <laughs> and then poured the direct press Albariño and Cabernet on top of whole cluster of Syrah. And then I threw in Chenin Blanc skins. <laughs> because why and not? That's, that's the thing, like, Tom and Kate's Chenin Blanc came in from Yakima that same day. They pressed it off and there was beautiful skins in a bin that were potentially just going to go to compost and they were ripe and smelled great and there wasn't smoke so why not just throw it in there and then right as I was preparing to like kind of pack up and get ready to fly back to the East Coast, by uh, my, my dear friend, Laura Brennan, who uh, runs Inconia Wines in California, but also now lives on Underwood Mountain, Washington. Uh, she and I had hung out a few days before and we're picking food in her garden for this food justice project that she's doing at Hood River. And we went and picked apples and pears from this very old orchard just down the hill from her vineyards. And she was like, if you want some of these apples, just drive up here and pick them. So, Kate and I put a little caravan together. We drove up to Underwood in like way worse rain than this. Uh, and I picked a ton of apples, and she picked two tons of pears. And it was, again, like, this will be another little bit of juice that we can make this year in such a hard year. And apples and pears don't, guayacal doesn't seem to, smoke doesn't seem to permeate the skins, and it doesn't hold guayacal in the same way as grapes. and. It was really fun and exciting to make because neither of us had made any form of cider before. So we kind of approached it in a winemaking making mentality, wanting to sort of make it in a, a pet nat kind of style. And again, it was like, there's all of these other ingredients that are here that I can pepper in and add some interest. So the, the cider ended up probably being, not probably, it was the craziest thing that I made. We I got a, a hand scratter, a hand, uh, Shredder, rented it, shredded all the apples by hand, which I will not do again, because I was sore for like three days. (laughs) And I was like throwing in clusters of Gamay and Syrah and Cabernets. I threw the Cabernet skins from the direct pressed Cabernet from the red wine. And then we pressed it over the Chenin Blanc that had just been pressed. Uh, And then it ended up getting some Nebbiolo Rosé in it. And it was like twenty five different things, basically, <laughs> but it was really fun, and i 'm going to make something like that again this year, but it was you know having to think on your toes and change everything day by day that really it was hard, and it sucked having to do it in a mask during the pandemic, but it was really fun, and it like unleashed this creative thing in me that i didn 't even really know I had
1: love that. So you you mentioned the the sort of the where you'd like your brand to go. So tell me about the sort of the philosophy behind the brand and, and sort of where you are now, what you're
2: thinking it it will represent in the yeah. future. Um there's always going to be kind of a, you know, experimental go with the flow do crazy stuff element to it every year, but I also starting this year have really wanted to dial in the farming aspect so i'm trying to everything is at least organic this year but really trying to buy fruit from growers that are working regeneratively so still getting grenache from herb quaddi who's organic but i'm going to be getting some fruit from johan which is biodynamic and i've worked with with tom and kate and brian uh, and my dear friend Elise is now farming the vineyard. Uh, probably even gonna get some apples from them, knock on wood. That's not wood, but <laughs> fingers crossed. Uh, and then I'm buying some fruit from Underwood Mountain from Laura Brennan, who's working like a hundred percent regenerative. So she's really like trying to push underwood to move more into that. But then also, asking questions about labor in the vineyards themselves. I know, you know, Tom and Kate have always kind of been on that push to make sure that everyone that's picking gets a fair wage, Um, but with working with Laura, she has people who work for her full time. She pays them salary or a very high out hourly rate and they have health insurance and things like that and that's been very important to me and then also all of my label art is done by uh, BIPOC or LGBTQIA folks to kind of like go back to my community too so really trying to you know make fun approachable experimental wines but also incorporate some elements of social justice, because that is such an important thing to me. Um, And not like stir the pot or push the envelope too much, but do really what I can to give back. Uh, This last vintage, I will, I haven't really gotten all of my uh, checks yet for all the wine that I've sold, but I'm uh, donating a decent amount of my proceeds to um, different, to two different uh, trans activist organizations in Brooklyn, uh, For the quarrels and Glitz, if you wanna look those up.
1: So social justice as a kind of a key component of, of, of your, and, I, and that goes back. How has that, something you've been interested in a long time, obviously even before, this wine production became part of things. How have you seen that
2: kind of filter into the wine world? Um, quite a bit in the last year, which is great. Um, you know, I, I had some, I felt for a few years when I was working in Brooklyn and trying to talk about social justice issues that sometimes people like looked at me like I was a guy standing on a soapbox, like preaching. Um, but I'm really glad to start seeing the, the wine world start to reflect on itself quite a bit more Uh, and I think that Oregon in particular is stepping it up a bit more than some of our other domestic producing regions which I think is great Um, especially in New York I mean the the reckoning post George Floyd has completely changed the environment of working in hospitality and and being a wine professional and not thinking it of, of it just as like the white guy in a suit Somme situation, and really trying to validate the work of everyone who is involved in the hospitality side, but then also allowing room for different types of wines to, to show up on wine lists that aren't solely dictated by the top 20, producers of Grand Cru Burgundies and really diversifying what people are offering for the folks that are coming into the restaurant. Then I think also on the production side, there's a lot of push to have work in the cellar be more diverse and be more inclusive, which I think is wonderful. There's The Hughes Society is really involved in, in getting people to be involved in wine production and growing and viticulture and kind of, you know, opening the door and having it bring more people in, which is something that I've wanted to do my entire wine career. And it's really great to start seeing it unfold a bit more. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's been pushing this way for the last two years now, and I'm excited to see where it goes from here. talked about your labels a
1: little bit tell me about the, the sort of the name the name of the brand and and the meaning behind the labels yeah
2: so erda is the German word for earth and I am of German heritage so it was uh, kind of given a, a call back to my mom's side of the family and then the names of all the wines last year were references to rain or water because of, funny enough, because (laughs) of the wildfires, but they were all titles of songs that I love. So the cider was called Cloud Busting after the Kate Bush song, the Grenache Rosé was Ice Blink Luck after the Cocteau Twins song, and the red wine that I made was Prayers for Rain after the Cure song.
1: And with the with the kind of the aesthetic of the brand, what are you what are you hoping for? Who, who what's what's the clientele you're looking for, and what do you kind of hope is the attracting factor?
2: Um, I think when you look at the labels, I, I don't think that you know I, I wanted my logo to kind of look like a metal band logo a bit, but be able to decipher what the letters are. <laughs> a lot of metal bands, you can't read what the word is. Uh, and I wanted it to have kind of like a, a punk metal edge to it. Uh, I think that the, the labels themselves sort of speak to what the wines are going to be and that they're, you know, a little bit kooky. <laughs> um, and I think that, you know, I'm not trying to only have my wines be purchased by like people between the ages of 20 and 45, but I think that that's probably the clientele that are attracted to it. Uh, I'm not making super serious, really long-term aging wines quite yet. I will probably try to experiment with a little bit of that in the future, but I'm trying to make things that are joyful and easy to drink within the first like one to four years of their lives. I don't know how these things are going to turn out with longer age. I thankfully uh, held back a case of Wallace for myself, just to see how it develops. Um, I'm not opposed to seeing where the wines go with age, but that's not what I'm pushing for. And I'm also trying to keep everything at a really approachable price point. Things were a little bit higher priced this year than I wanted them to be, but it's also the first year of trying to recoup getting this thing off the ground. I really want to see things like between Twenty and thirty-five on restaurant shelves, or below sixty-five on wine lists, mm-hmm. so that people can afford to buy them and drink them and enjoy them. Tell me about the actual uh, of
1: the actual production process and learning production. Obviously, you're, you're trying some very interesting things between grapes and cider. Uh, tell me about the the knowledge behind it and, and what you've learned kind of along the way about making
2: wine. Yeah. I mean, I I learned from three of the best. So, you know, really trying to like, from the first year that I came out here, trying to get my hands as dirty as possible. I mean, the, the first two years that I was out here, I was basically the, the punch down jockey and the barrel cleaner, <laughs> which I am very grateful for, because it taught me how to work as clean as possible in the cellar. like how to mix chemicals to clean well and why we have to clean off the punch down tool between each bin, stuff like that. Um, you know, Kate and Tom and, and Brianne are brilliant winemakers and they're meticulous with how they make their wines and they have different styles for sure, but it ultimately comes back to like working pretty hands-off in the cellar, but also working cleanly. Mm-hmm making sure that you know, you're know you checking in on stuff every single day to make sure that your ferments aren't going south, and if things do start to smell a little weird, getting in there to try to correct it as quickly as possible before letting it go too crazy. I mean, I love natural wine and that's my background and what got me into all of this, but I'm not trying to make things that are really, really high in VA or are, are too weird, and that's the way that I I want to continue to push the product. I'm still always going to be native yeast fermentations, unfiltered, lower, no sulfur. I only made the two of the three things that I made last year. Two had no sulfur additions to them, but they thankfully did not turn bacterial at all. Um, which is kind of crazy. I was surprised that they came out as well as they did cuz you know, I I know what I'm doing for the most part, but it was the first time that I had just like done it all myself. With Wallace, Tom and Kate were very involved and last year they were like you're going to do it yourself. You make the call on all of this stuff. And it turned out well and Last year was such a huge learning experience of what to do when things don't turn out the way you want them to, that I think it's hopefully set me up to be able to be a very versatile and flexible winemaker, but most importantly, like I want my, my wines to be clean, even if they're I'm not trying to sell myself as a natural winemaker, but the wines are natural. Uh, But I don't want them to be funky. (laughs) Fine line to walk. Yeah. The cider definitely turned out a little wild and there is some funk to it, as to kind of be expected with something that was bottle fermented. Um, But I'm gonna do it in a little bit of a different way. I, I learned from, I don't feel like any of it was a mistake, but I learned from the results Mm -hmm. and now I'm gonna like be a little bit more careful and rack a little bit harder and try to get less solids in the bottle before I put the crown cap on and hopefully things won't be explosive. I did have a couple very uh, lively bottles of the cider. (laughs) Time bombs in your cellar. 90 degree angle. Well, you talked about how
1: you had been at Roberta's until just recently. So tell us about, tell me about that uh, decision for you and and what comes next for you in the wine world.
2: Yeah, um, I sort of moved into a consulting wine director role with them in the late winter, early fall, uh, or early spring. And it was because I, I needed to kind of step back from restaurant work. Last year, my position changed a lot. So I, I was really like beverage focused. That was what I did. I would fly out to LA once a month to make sure that the wine list and the cocktail lists were going well. And I was teaching wine classes and that was my thing. But obviously with how the pandemic shook out, my role had to change and I became a floor manager again after like finally hanging that hat up and it was really hard I don't think anyone would question how difficult last year was but it was also really long hours and it was like taking a toll on my health. And I knew that if I was wanting to kind of bump up production of my wines, and focus a little bit more on that, that I needed to make a change. So I've landed in the retail side of things full time, which is, you know, a, a totally different beast, but it's a 40 a week, 40 hour a week job. And that's, that's the first time that I've worked 40 hours a week in my adult life. and. It's been a little bit of an adjustment kind of lifestyle wise and trying to like pinch my pennies a little bit more but it's been great and it allows me to have more freedom and be able to come out here in august for a week to check in on vineyards and make a game plan for making the wines in september and allows me to take a month off for coming out for wine making time but then also if I need to take three or four days to pop out here to rack or barrel down or bottle I'm able to do that a bit more which I couldn't do restaurant wise so this year is gonna hopefully feel like I I feel like the 2020 wines are mine and I was very hands-on with them but I was relying on the division crew to Handle a good amount of it. I was, I wasn't quite a fully Custom Crush client, but there was some Custom Crush elements to it. Um, but I'm planning to be out here to rack and barrel down and make the decisions of all of the aspects because I'll finally have the time to be mm-hmm. a bit more involved. And you know, over the next few years, I'll probably transition more towards being. Even more involved and be out here a bit more. Um, but I'm very happy with with where I'm landing now. I don't love flying here like five times a year. I do a carbon offset though. <laughs> it is an interesting challenge to try to yeah. live New York and make wine
1: in Oregon, so as you look ahead is it something you think you can keep doing or is there gonna be
2: more of a some other change coming I I think it's something that I'm gonna keep doing for a while at this size I'm not trying to be have this be my in my career be what the only thing that I do I'm gonna probably be closer to 500 cases this year and that's probably where I'm gonna top out so keeping it small being able to hopefully sell it all um, and then being able to, you know, rely on making the wine with with Tom and Kate and not owning my own facility, and just taking it from there. I don't know where it's gonna go. Who knows? Who knows what the future's gonna hold at this point. It was a pretty wild idea to start a brand in 2020. (laughs) I don't regret it.
1: Well, we've talked quite a bit about 2020 already. Obviously, it had an effect on all, all all facets for you. I'm curious um, when it came time to start that, start the brand, and, and and do all of that. Did you did you hesitate at all? Did you did you think did you rethink your your strategy at all, or did you yeah. just kind of go for it?
2: Yeah, there was there was a couple of moments, especially when fire started in the South, uh, that I got very very worried. And, you know, I was on phone calls with Tom being like, should I even come out? Is this going to be worth it? I talked to friends in California who had dealt with wildfire vintages and got their impressions of the resultant wines and the difficulties that they had to undergo. But ultimately, Tom really, like, talked me off the ledge last year, uh, and he was like, just come out, let's make the wines, we'll see where it goes. If it doesn't go exactly the way that you want, at least you'll learn more. And so that that's how I approached it mindset-wise, and going into it with, with eyes open like that really changed the whole thing. So, you know, there, there were, some doubts for sure and I had a few moments of like imposter syndrome where I was like am I a winemaker is this the the thing that I'm going to do is this going to be part of my life Um, but I'm really happy with how everything turned out and knock on wood the year keeps going the way that it's going and Hopefully we don't have a repeat performance. This little bit of drizzle was a happy coincidence. Happy coincidence. Um, we talked about the
1: kind of the, your impressions of the industry and your work with the industry while you're in New York. Tell me about other changes you've seen in Oregon wine since you've been kind of a part of it. What's, what's changed about it? What does the industry look like right now in 2021? Oof.
2: To you. <laughs> um, I'm very fortunate with the people that I'm involved with in the industry, um, I very much consider them my family. Uh, I think that the direction that a lot of newer producers are going is super interesting and I think that that, that is kind of the precedent that's being taken in a lot of markets outside of Portland. It's been really great to see friends of mine who were making wines in Southeast Wine Collective or at day camp start to really blossom and get traction and have their wines sell out when they come to LA or New York or Chicago Um, and they're very much outside of what the majority of the nation assumes is Oregon wine. Here I feel like there's, you know, a lot of really, really interesting things happening and I think the discussion of taking things even beyond organic viticulture is becoming more and more apparent. Uh, I think that having people here like Mimi Castile who are just pushing things forward and having people think outside the box of what they assume organic farming is, mm-hmm. is really great. I think having, you know, the person who put Oregon wine on the map, the, the son of the guy who planted the first vines, taking things to no-till regenerative agriculture is setting a really great example and I think a lot of that has to do with feeling the impacts of climate change. It is impossible to deny that it's happening when you're here and you see things changing. I I lived here in the mid-2000s and it was never like this and so I think a lot of it is, unfortunately, a reactionary response, but it's a necessary response to say, yes, we as an industry can sequester carbon, we can work in a way that will improve and resolidify solidify and, you know, heal the earth, hopefully, um, because it's, it's clearly become a state of emergency. And you know, that's always been part of, you know, the the Oregon lifestyle in my mind is, you know, this has always been a a state that people associate with eco-conscious people. But I think a lot of people in the wine industry have, have stepped up and are working towards being net zero or even negative that's setting an example to the rest of the wine industry in this country. I think the, you know, didn't the Willamette Valley just get recognized as a protected? Yeah, PGI. Yeah, it's the Willamette Valley and Napa, that's it. Mm -hmm. And so getting that recognition on top of the amount of organic vineyards in the state I think is really setting a really good example for the rest of the country. I think people are, at least my my kind of little peer group, are are doing some really fun, really exciting, experimental stuff. I'm seeing more people doing multi-fruit ferments and you know, Piquette is kicking off a bit here too and uh, I got to see Chad Stock yesterday at the uh, Pinot Noir auction and what he and Brie are doing with limited edition. And the stuff that they've planted at Eola Springs is super inspiring. They're they're two of the most brilliant minds in winemaking in this state, I think. And looking at what people like Brie and Tom and Kate did in what could have been a disastrous vintage and put out stuff that was, delicious and, you know, Brianne even called one of the wines lemonade, like turning lemons into lemonade, making stuff that can really, you know, show that even in disastrous times, we can pull ourselves back up and keep it going. And I really, I really admire those, two wineries for keeping as much of their fruit contracts as they did because it's it's that fostering of relationships between the growers and the winemakers that I think is super important. They didn't they didn't leave anyone in the lurch. They didn't leave anyone in the dust. They they kept all of their fruit. All of it. And I know some wineries turned it down and I get it wanting to to make wine in a year where the Guayacol levels were skyrocketing and through the roof, and some people saw things that have been worse than California's ever seen because it was just sitting in vineyards. But the the commitment to the longevity and, you know, the ability for these farmers to keep doing what we're asking them to do is so important. Like, how how can we expect people to continue to work organic, regenerative, no-till, any year where they didn't make any money where they lost literally everything so actually putting your money where your mouth is that's inspiring
1: yeah yeah absolutely so then Talk about the future for Oregon wine. There's obviously a lot of things we've talked about today between sort of the social justice and inclusion, between climate change, between sort of the changing of Oregon's reputation and what it's making. What do you see as you look ahead for the industry? What do you what do you maybe hope for, and, and what are some of maybe your fears for the future?
2: Well, yesterday I was at the Pinot Noir auction. I was. Uh, Tom and Kate's guest and you know it was like the the big wineries it was the established Pinot Noir and Chardonnay producers here and there were people who were showing wines that were fermented in amphora that wouldn't have happened five years ago so the effect that that the smaller group of people who were working in this more natural hands-off low intervention style is, is impacting the whole state I think and I, I think it's pushing things forward and allowing for a lot of these more established wineries to, to have kind of experimental bits and thinking more outside of the box, and I think that that's great. I would love to keep seeing more of that. I'm very excited to start seeing more stuff that is diversified outside of Pinot and Chardonnay, and side of just the Willamette Valley, like I, I love stuff from Applegate Valley. I'm a huge fan of Rhone wines, and I love, love, love Grenache, and I'm so happy to work with Herbs Grenache down there. And I think people are starting to take that AVA a bit more seriously. Um, think obviously the, the gorge is incredible and what Nate Reddy's doing at Hayu is changing a lot of minds about what that area is going to do. Fears, of course, are that we're gonna just continue to have 2020s and that this area that used to be called a, a cool climate growing region is not going to be able to be that soon, that those, you know, benchmark Pinot Noirs that made this place what it is are going to be 14 and a half alcohol every single year. So, where do we go from here? Are we gonna have to start planting Syrah in the Eola Amity Hills? Who knows, but that's that's the position that I think people are starting to think about as this place becomes more and more solar, more and more hot that we need to be thinking about what we're actually going to be able to make from this place. Obviously, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay will always be here, but it's gonna be a bit of a switch to think about these things as being richer, bigger, unless we rein it in. Mm -hmm. It was like 2018 happened and the wines were big and then twenty nineteen happened, and it was like, oh, we're kind of back to normal. <laughs> and then this last year, and then this year. Now,
1: what do you think about for this year? We haven't really talked to many people yet about sort of forecasting the twenty twenty one. But I know we're going into Verizon now; things are starting to come into focus. Tell me about what twenty twenty one looks like.
2: Well, it's seeming like it's going to be a little bit earlier. Um, <laughs> I anticipating that. like. Secondish week of September for a fruit to start coming in. Stuff in the south might actually be a little bit slower just because it's been so hot. You know, at 95 degrees, vines shut down, so the accumulation of sugar is taking a bit longer down there than sort of anticipated. But out here, it's been only, you know, it hits 95 or 100 for only a couple of hours, so there's all of that time before for stuff to ripen. So things are looking pretty advanced. I'm, I'm trying to go down to Johan to go check in on my my fruit that I'm gonna buy from them this year and see where it's at, but I, I've heard that there's some color already happening there and they're usually pretty far behind everybody because Van Duzer is blessed with all that wind. So it's seeming like, you know, after a smoke year, anticipating that it would be that yield would be down, and they are a bit, but not nearly as bad as what I was preparing to get at the beginning of this year. Like Trying to find fruit was pretty difficult, especially organic white grapes, because a lot of people just bought up white grapes at the forefront because they wanted to get ahead of what this year could have turned into, and it was like, okay, every single white grape is purchased, great. But I'm, I'm hopeful. I mean, stuff that I've seen so far is, looks looks healthy. I mean, it's dry, but that can mean for really great concentration. I'm not making powerful, big wines by any stretch of the imagination, so I'm probably gonna make the, the pick call potentially even a, a bit earlier, because I'd like to have stuff be like between 20 and 23 bricks, and we'll see where it goes. But I'm also, you know, after learning about apples and pears not carrying glycol the way that grapes do, I'm gonna gonna purchase a bit more orchard fruit this year. Just not not as like a feel safe, but as a means to, you know, feel a bit more confident
1: and comfortable. (laughs) So obviously you took an inter- interesting path into the Oregon wine industry. So yeah. so tell me if someone were to ask you for your advice on getting into the Oregon wine industry, what would you, your words of wisdom to them be?
2: The, the best thing to do is like, find a harvest intern position with someone. I, I took it slow. I didn't, I've never been paid as a harvest intern. I've come out to learn how to do this stuff because I wanted to make some wine with my friends, and you know, it was a week and a half, and then two and a half weeks the next year, and then three weeks the next year, and then six weeks the next year, so I kind of did it in increments, Um, but you know, finding a winery that you believe in and trying to get an internship there Doing the the grunt work for the first year and seeing if you're okay with that. Because if you're not if you're not okay with scrubbing bins out and washing barrels and scrubbing the floor and squeegeeing the floor a lot, then making wine might not be for you because it's a lot of cleaning. Uh, but yeah, like find find s- someone that more importantly than like if you if you like the wine. Find someone who makes the wine that you believe in, that you are inspired by, that you know is going to treat you right, treat you with respect and dignity, and hold on to them if you can. And I am a firm believer that experiential knowledge is more beneficial in certain ways than theoretical knowledge. Um, I clearly never went to winemaking school. I know you know a lot of the most successful winemakers have done it and I absolutely respect those that you know go to UC Davis and learn all of this stuff and I'm thankful that I have a few few of those people in my life that are my friends that I can ask questions about uh, but the everything that I've learned I've learned from my friends.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything no. we didn't cover here? No. We should cover next. I feel great. Next. <laughs> Good, you're supposed to feel great. That's awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for yeah. your time and thank for your you. stories and, and sharing with us and enjoying some Oregon uh, summer drizzle out here in, the, in Portland. And uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook.
0: Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast.